The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving... Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we open God's Word this morning, let's make sure that we are ready to study God's Word, ready to concentrate, and uh, we do so under the filling of God the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher and who is the one who helps us to comprehend and understand the Scriptures and to see how they apply to our lives. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, so you can use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary to confess your sins in privacy to God the Father. And that will restore you to fellowship, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit. Then we can study God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we have your word, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. It instructs us not merely about yourself, not merely about salvation, but it gives us a frame of reference and a framework for understanding all of the events in human history, helps us to understand the major battle that rages around us that is a part of the angelic conflict, And it informs us as to how we as believers are to think, how we are to interpret the facts of history, the facts of uh, events around us, so that we can think about your creation as as you think, and that we may honor and glorify you with our lives. Now, Father, we pray as we begin this study of Judges this morning that you would challenge us with the things we will see there, and we can see how these things apply to our own thinking. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this morning we're going to begin a new study in a book that is rarely preached on or taught through in any church. I doubt that anyone here has ever gone through a verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study of Judges. Now, you might have studied Gideon or you might have studied Samson. But I doubt that you have ever gone in any depth into Judges, which is, which is, number one, it's a tragedy. Number two, it's a shame. And number three, it is uh, doubly tragic and shameful because it is a book that I think is a book for our times. The first time I really got into Judges was about uh, 21 years ago. I was digging around in my files last night. Pulled out my file of judges on judges, and the first time I taught through the book was in the Lay Institute at Dallas Seminary in 1979 when I was in my third year at Dallas. And uh, uh, I learned a lot from that and went on to, uh, I've taught, it, taught through it a couple of times in the past. Each time I think, well, I've done this before, so I don't have as much work to do, but you always build on what you've learned in the meantime, so it just challenges you even more. But what has always impressed me about Judges is the theme of this book. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to the last verse in Judges. The last verse in Judges. Judges is the book right before Ruth, right before 1 Samuel, sandwiched between Joshua and Ruth. And this is 
a book that will probably be well earmarked in your Bibles before we get done. The last verse is really repeated twice. It's repeated fully in Judges 17, verse 6, and again here in the last verse, whenever the Holy Spirit repeats a verse verbatim. And to my knowledge, He doesn't do that, but a few times in the Scripture, it should arrest our attention because He really wants to make the point. Here we read, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, by way of introduction this morning, that's about as far as we're going to get, is to understand the dynamics of what is going on behind this purpose so that we can see how it relates to us. Judges was in many ways the dark ages of Israel's history. And it is the dark ages of Israel's history because they rejected the authority of God, they rejected the authority of Scripture, and in its place they substituted their own authority. In other words, rather than looking to God for absolutes or looking to the Bible for absolutes and then structuring all their thought under that umbrella, they looked to the community, they looked to one another and to themselves as the source of absolutes and the source of right and wrong. So that you had a culture that was drenched in moral relativism, which shouldn't take you, if you have a couple of brain cells that are rubbing together, too long to figure out what the application is and how it relates to our culture in 20th century America today. I think that it is going to challenge everyone here as we go through this. We're going to see a number of themes that are developed, and we're going to see the pathology of an apostate, anti-God, relativistic culture. We're going to see how it affects everything. We're going to see how it changes worship practices. We're going to see how it affects... Uh, the role of men and women in a society in contrast to God's uh, plan for the role of men and women in society. And we're going to see how uh, degraded a culture can become when they are paganized. For that is exactly what happens in the judge's narrative, is that if you remember, and it shouldn't be too long, we just finished our survey of of the Old Testament last week. If you remember the context here... They have gone into the land and they are to conquer and completely destroy the Canaanites. The Canaanites represent the most extreme paganization of the ancient world. What happens when a people reject God and live out their own assumptions about life on their own authority to the fullest? And it is just a, a, a rank, evil culture. And all cultures are not equal. That's what your kids are being taught in school. and you better correct them now and every day, that all cultures are not equal. In fact, Ken was over last night, and we were talking about some of the things he's heard from some of his uh, kids downstairs as to what they're taught in social studies. And one of the lies that they're taught in school is that America does not have a culture. It is just an amalgam of other cultures. And that attacks the very root and foundation of the uh, founding of this nation, Uh, on biblical Judeo-Christian principles. And it ignores that, rejects it completely, because, of course, in the mind of modern man, religion is isolated, it's compartmentalized, it has something to do with your subjective psychological state, but it really, but it has nothing to do with objective reality, and it certainly should never have anything to do with politics, or law, or education, or the study of history, or anything substantive. It's just a a personal, subjective experience. And we're going to see that this is uh, far from the truth, and we're going to have to challenge almost every notion of modern, secular, postmodern culture as we go through this study. So uh, unless you want to um, just come to church and feel completely comfortable feel very happy and soothed and, and uh, that everything you think and believe is right, uh, you might want to start coming second hour. But I think you'll still be affected a little bit even if you come second hour. Now, the purpose for any introduction to a book of the Bible is to give us some level of orientation to that book, an overview, so that when we get into the text, when we get into the study of it, we can somehow have a frame of reference for putting together all of the various details that are going on in that particular book. And since most people in 20th century America don't have much of an education in terms of either the Bible 
you know, that reminds me, people ought to be reading their Bible every day. I think for some reason in doctrinal churches, we've gotten the idea from some folks that uh, you shouldn't read your Bible. You might get confused because uh, the translations aren't that good. Well, that might have been true 20 or 30 years ago when all you had was a King James Version and you're divorced from King James English for by about uh, 400 years, th- or three or 400 years. But most translations are pretty good today. They're fairly accurate. Uh, I wouldn't go with the NIV. I really don't like it. it does, it's what's called the dynamic equivalence translation. And that's uh, idiomatic. And, for example, they will interpret it. Now, look at a passage like 1 Corinthians 3.1, which talks about the fleshly believer, the sarkinos believer in the Greek, which sarks is the word for flesh. And, they, and in the NIV, they translate it worldly. That's an interpretation, folks. That's not a, that's not a translation. And you want to stay away from translations where the uh, translators interpret for you instead of translate. Uh, cosmos is the word for worldly, not sarkinos. And uh, I can't believe the translators got away with that. But see, they interpreted that that's the effect. That's the dynamic equivalence. And it's a very loose way of viewing the text. And despite the fact that most of the uh, translators were professors at Dallas Seminary and Trinity, I really have problems with that sort of approach to the Scriptures. But uh, most people today don't know the Bible very well. They don't know the stories. They don't know the people. They don't know the events. They don't understand how things gel together. So that when you start a study of a book like this, uh, 50 years ago, you could assume that people had read through Judges at least once in their life, and probably recently. Well, I would assume that half of you have never read through Judges 1 through the end of the book. And you probably don't know who Shamgar is. You probably don't understand anything about Jephthah and his vow. And you probably know very little about Gideon and Samson. And what you know is probably a little skewed. So we're going to have to take some time to start off with some real basics to orient and understand some things. Not only are are people generally biblically ignorant, they're ignorant of the framework of ancient history in which these events took place. We're talking about events that took place between about uh, 10... 50 B.C. back to approximately 1360 B.C. So that covers a period of a little over 300 years, and that is a big hole in most of our educations. I know I was even a history major, and uh, aside from the studies I've done related to Scripture, uh, if it weren't for that, there would be a hole in my education. And since most of you don't have master's degrees in history, I would assume that you have a major hole there as well. So we'll have to uh, orient ourselves historically and biblically. Now, a major principle of interpretation of Scripture is that all Scripture must be interpreted in the time in which it was written. That means that in order to properly interpret the Scriptures, we must understand the dynamics of what was going on in the ancient world in the 12th, 13th, 14th century B.C. And before we can even apply anything, we have to make sure we have a correct interpretation. So... That entails a certain approach in, in our uh, introduction this morning. Whenever you inter- start a book study, you always need to take a little time to inform yourself on who wrote it, when it was written, uh, the historical context, the purpose of the writing, and the basic thematic structure of the book, whatever it might be. You know, that's just true for anything you read, whether it's Moby Dick, whether it's... Uh, a Shakespearean play, or whether it is uh, a book in the Bible. That is just basic interpretive approach to any piece of literature, is to orient yourself to those basic basic facts. Now, we're going to start off with, uh, in Judges, we see the purpose statement here in verse 25, and we'll come back to that in a little bit. And we're going to understand that there, we're going to see that there's a lot of secondary themes throughout this book, that relate to a biblical, developing a biblical philosophy. And by biblical philosophy, I don't mean an, an autonomous philosophy like most political philosophy that you got in poli-sci 101 in college or, or civics in, in high school if you were old enough to have gone to high school when they still mandated civics. Uh, we're not talking about abstract political philosophy. We're talking about developing from the Scriptures what the Bible teaches about 
government and the purpose and function and role of government. So we're going to get into government politics. Uh, leadership is a fundamental theme from a, really a ne- negative side in the book of Judges because all the leaders are pretty screwy. Even though if you turn to Hebrews chapter 11, it lists most of them in the great chapter because of the Hall of Faith chapter in Hebrews 11. By their faith, these men succeeded, and it talks about Deborah and Barak and Gideon and Jephthah and Samson. And yet, uh, what I am always encouraged by in that verse is as I've studied this men, they are, for the most part, losers, failures, they're paganized, they have adopted the culture surrounding them to the max. But at one or two critical points, they understand an issue of doctrine and they trust God shakily, hesitantly, doubting, but they trust God at one particular point and they execute a victory and deliver God's people and so God praises them for that. I don't know about you, but that encourages me because we are all sinners. And so that is a major theme of this whole book is going to be dealing with the problems of our sin nature. But it deals a lot with the issues of politics, leadership, social structures, uh, the roles of men and women in, in a biblical society and how that is transformed through moral relativism and is distorted and how uh, it affects this, the, the roles of the sexes. Now, Judges is, in my opinion, the first real history book that was ever written. The date of its writing is somewhat uncertain, probably written by Samuel, and we'll get to that in a minute, probably written by Samuel uh, during Saul's monarchy. At least we know that it was written before David took, took, um, took Jerusalem. And when Judges was written, there had never before in the history of man been a historical analysis of man. Now, when I did my doctoral work, one of my favorite courses was a course called Historiography. Now, most people don't know what historiography is, but you cannot read a history book without the author expressing either overtly or covertly his philosophy of history. Now, there's a difference between, uh, uh, let's say, history uh, like Toynbee or Spengler and their history of mankind or history of the world and a book you might pick up on on uh, World War II, on the history of a battle or something like that, which is basically a chronicle. There's a difference between a chronicle, which is basically an analysis of events, what took place and the order in which it took place, and trying to put that into some kind of overall framework as to what history is doing, where history is going, what its purpose is, and what its mechanics are. So if you read uh, even even, uh, economic books like uh, Marx or you read... Uh, Adam Smith in his uh, book on the wealth of the nations, that is a historical analysis and there is a philosophy of history that underlies all of those writings. And the Bible is the first book, really Judges is the first book that gives us a philosophy of history, not just a recitation of events. When you took history, if you took, went to college and took Western Civ or in American history, world history, in high school, you were told the father of history was Herodotus. It was the Greeks. The Americans always ignore the Bible. Herodotus functioned in about the 5th century B.C., and he wrote, and he basically wrote a chronicle. This is what happened, and, and this is what the result was, and then this happened, and then they had a battle with these people. It's a recording of events. That's not history. That's writing a chronicle. History is when you analyze those events to determine what their meaning is, And that involves some concept of the overall flow of history. Now, the Greeks had a cyclical view of history. It's not much different from the uh, Hindu view of history. Cycles just go on and on repeatedly, and it has no direction, no purpose. There's no God outside of history who is working out his plan in and through history. And biblically, when you look at history, history is the outworking of the plan of God. It has direction, it has purpose, and the mechanisms in history are twofold. They are the sovereignty of God, and they are the execution of man's volition. And that is what makes history. And when you combine uh, this historical approach 
that is introduced only by the by Christianity because only Christianity can come and has outside revelation by which to evaluate events. Now, you, later on, there are other people who distort that, and that's why you see Marxism usually classified as a, as a um, as an offshoot of Christian historiography. But that's getting off into other issues. When Judges was written, it's the first picture, I mean the first history book, and it portrays man as he is. I mean, you see all their sinfulness, their carnality. It just paints them in all of their, their negative aspects. And it gives us the, the idea, especially when it's written for Israel, is to display in Israel's history the causation, which is their negative volition. And it is grounded in the cursing and blessing uh, aspects, chapters of Deuteronomy, beginning in Deuteronomy 24. We studied how God gave a covenant to Israel, and He outlined how they were to live. And at the end, He said, If you obey My covenant, I will bless you this way, and if you disobey, I will curse you. Judges is the outworking of the cursing aspects of the Deuteronomic law, of the Mosaic law on Israel, because of their failure to maintain the covenant and to walk in obedience to God. Now, this displays a view of history that is uh, that 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 it has at its core the concept of progress. As a Christian, you should look at history as a as something that is progressing and is moving toward an ultimate goal, which is the culmination of God's plan and purposes in history. Now, there's a lot of different other views of history that are progressive. Marxism is progressive, and uh, evolution, Darwinism is progressive. But they borrowed that. They're not that legitimately. They didn't develop the idea of progress on their own. Pagan cultures never developed a view of history. They all borrowed it from Christianity. I mean, from the, from the Old Testament. And we're going to see an element of that in as we go through this. Now, Deuteronomy, to put judges in the context of what's happened in Israel's history... Deuteronomy provides the constitution of the theocratic government of Israel. God is the king. Theocracy means God rules. Theos, God. Krasis is the Greek for rule. Democracy is from the Greek demos, meaning the masses or the mob. And krasis, rule. So we operate on a democracy, which is where the mob rules or mass rule, and uh, not the um, uh, representative form of government, republic form of government originally envisioned, but that's because we have lost sight of history again, and we have cut ourselves off from our, as we'll see, our base in a Judeo-Christian ethic, which is what informed the founding fathers in their thinking so they could write something like the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Uh, Once you cut yourself off from that, as modern Supreme Court has, then you lose Uh, then you lose that source and then you're cast adrift. Now, Deuteronomy provides the constitution for the theocracy and instructions for every area of life for the citizen of Israel. Joshua, then, is the conquest of the land. We saw in our study of the orientation to the Old Testament that what you need for a nation is a land, you need a body of law or a constitution, and you need a people. Well, the people are brought out of Egypt at the Exodus. They are given a constitution, a body of law at Mount Sinai, and that is reiterated to the second generation in Deuteronomy. And then they are given a land. And this goes back to the land promise, the real estate promise in the Abrahamic covenant. And Joshua is the... Uh, relates to us the conquest of the land as God gives the land to the nation Israel. Judges, then, is a history book that records how Israel has responded to God. And in this case, it is in negative volition, but we still see throughout it God's grace despite Israel's failure. So judges will begin the prophetic analysis of history. Now, let's look at, to understand prophecy, when we think of prophecy, we always tend to think of foretelling, telling the future, but that's only one aspect of prophecy. 
the role of the prophet was to reveal God's will and God's judgment on man. That's the role of the prophet, is to reveal God's will and God's judgment to man. And that's why when you look at Isaiah, you look at Jeremiah, you look at Ezekiel, the major prophets, there's this catalog of judgments against Moab, against Edom, against Philistia, against Babylon, against Tyre. And many of those judgments that were announced haven't been fulfilled yet. So the announcement of a judgment like that is the foretelling of what God is going to do in judgment on that nation. That's where we get that idea of foretelling. But the key issue in prophecy is that it is the the prophet speaking for God, addressing man in his historical context in terms of blessing and in terms of judgment. Now, a key text for this is in the New Testament in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. And there we read, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, if you look at that, and you haven't thought very much or very deeply about this verse, it looks as if it's speaking about the individual being able to interpret Scripture. That you can't just interpret Scripture on, on, your, um, on your own. That's not what this is talking about. It is talking about the operation of the gift of prophecy, specifically in the Old Testament. That no prophecy of Scripture, that is, when the prophet announced his judgment or his analysis of what was going on in history, that this wasn't produced by his own opinion. This wasn't his own idea. It was God's revelation to him and God's analysis of what was going on in history, and it's not the prophet's independent analysis of what's going on in history. The prophet is not just generating this out of his own background. That's why it says in verse 21, No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but these men, the prophets, were moved along by God the Holy Spirit and spoke from God. Now, Judges, as I stated earlier, Judges was one of the, is the first book written by a prophet. Now, Moses functioned as a prophet, had the gift of prophecy, but Moses is not in the office of prophet as uh, the later prophets are. And this is, Samuel is really the first of the line of prophets in the Old Testament. And it is often thought, the Babylonian Talmud, in fact, states that that Samuel was the author of Judges. Now, that's not certain. We can't take that to the bank, but I think there's a fairly good um, argument for the fact that it was either Samuel or one of his students, because Samuel established a school of the prophets, which we might call a a seminary, uh, in in, uh, Judea where he trained prophets, and they they wrote Scripture, they copied, they traveled around Israel and taught the Word and taught the people about God, and it was either Samuel or one of his students that wrote this book. And we know that there are certain indications in the book that suggest that it was written after the monarchy began. For example, in Judges 17.6, it states, In those days, looking, looking at, at the period of the Judges, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Implication is that at the time of the writing, there was a king in Israel. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. In um, Judges 18.1, we read, In those days, there was no king of Israel, and in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for themselves to live in. So it starts with the phrase in Judges 18.1, In those days there was no king of Israel. And then in Judges 19.1, it states, Now it came about in those days when there was no king in Israel. Then again we saw in the last verse of the book, it states again, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. So the emphasis here is that, or the implication is that at the time Judges is written, there must have been a king in Israel. Now, because of a couple of other notations, for example, in the early part of uh, Judges, it talks about um, 
uh, conquering uh, Jerusalem, which is called uh, Jebus, other indications like that, it, it seems to imply that Jerusalem has not been conquered yet by David. So that means that the book was probably written between the uh, Saul becoming king and David taking, uh, taking Jerusalem away from the Jebusites. So it is an analysis then of what took place in Israel during this particular period of the judges, why these events took place and the impact they had, why God responded the way he did, and its relationship to kingship in Israel. Now, at a superficial level, what will happen is people read that and they'll say, well, that must mean that Judges is written simply to show that Israel needed to have a king. I mean, God obviously had a plan for Israel to have a king. He stated such in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 18. Our chapter 17 always gives stipulations. So God's plan all along was for Israel to have a king. In fact, there was the prophetic announcement to, to Judah that, that the, the scepter would never depart from the tribe of Judah. Back in uh, Genesis chapter 48, Joseph prophesied that. So obviously God had a plan to have a monarchy in Israel. But there's something that happens in terms of that monarchy, and that's what we need to understand. So let's take a few minutes to back up and orient ourselves to, um, to this period of time. In 1446 B.C., we have the Exodus. Then there's 40 years in the wilderness, which means that in 1406, they enter into the land. They cross the Jordan River under the generalship of Joshua, and it takes them seven years to secure the major borders of the land. From 1399 B.C., which is seven years later, to approximately 1360 B.C., we have the mopping up operation. In those first seven years, they conquered the major strongholds, uh, Jericho, Ai. They had some battles in the south in uh, what would later be Judah, and then far to the north up in Dan. And they conquered, they conquered the major strongholds, and then they had to go in and mop up. Now, we're going to get a close look at this because that's the... This mopping up operation is the subject of the first two chapters, or down to at least chapter 2, verse 5, of Judges. And then from roughly 1360 B.C., when the last of that generation dies off, from roughly 1360 B.C. to 1051 B.C. is the period of the Judges. That's the time. Uh, 1051 is when... 1051 is when Saul uh, becomes king. Let's look at it a little different way. In the period of the Judges, you have... And Judges ends with the last judge. Judges are Jephthah and Samson. And that's in the book of Judges. But the last two judges are Eli and Samuel, and they're included not in the book of Judges, but in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, because it is through them that God is going to, Eli's negative, Samuel is positive, he's a positive believer, it's through Samuel that the nation is going to recover. And then we have the period of the united monarchy under Saul, David, and Solomon. Now, as we come to the end of Judges, and it's important to understand what happens at the end of this period and the beginning of the next period in order to rightly understand what's going on in Judges. There are two periods of oppression. Now, when you read Judges, and you'll read that there are eight different Judges, eight different cycles of disobedience and discipline and deliverance when God brings a Judge and then the people go back through it again, and again, and just continue to deteriorate through these, these cycles, it seems on a surface reading that they take place one after the other. But if you study them carefully, they, they, they don't happen that way. We, one oppression, one oppressor may come in from the east and another one come in from the west so that they happen at roughly the same time or they are overlapping. The judges were not like a king. The term judge in the, in the Hebrew is uh, shafat, that means more the concept of a deliverer, although part, as we will see, part of their function was 
judicial in some sense. It was primarily the idea of a military deliverer. In fact, if I were to choose one word to translate Shaphat, it would not be judge, it would be deliverer. Because that is their function in the book, is to deliver the nation from being oppressed. Now, at the end of Judges, there are two oppressions. They both begin in 1124 B.C. The first one is the Ammonite oppression, and it ends in 1106 B.C. Now, we're going to have to go over these again and again, so they'll get into your head. Uh, but you have to orient yourself chronologically. So the first, this, this first oppression is the Ammonite oppression from 1124 B.C. to 1106 B.C. And the second oppression is the Philistine oppression that lasts from 1124 B.C. to 1084 B.C. The Ammonites are coming in from the east across the Jordan. The Philistines have a... Have, um, established a beachhead on the Mediterranean, and there are five major cities. The Philistines were Greek sea peoples who had migrated down and had uh, established colonies all over the Mediterranean. They had colonies in, um, over in North Africa, and that became known later in history as Carthage. Then you have the, the Philistines in the area of uh, Israel, and that, in, in, incidentally, the lexical background for the term Palestine Palestine is Philistine. Peleset. That's what they're called in the Hebrew, the Pelesets. So it is a misnomer for anybody who's biblically knowledgeable to ever refer to the land of Israel as Palestine. Because that it means it's the land of the Philistines. And it was never the land of the Philistines. They only had a beachhead along the Mediterranean. They never controlled more than uh, a small part, and it was during this period in history, the period of Philistine oppression. Now, to deal with these two oppressions, God raised up several different judges. The first was Jephthah, interesting fellow, sort of a pirate of the desert, a brigand, uh, wild, the son of a prostitute, and uh, he's an interesting character, and we'll enjoy our study of him when we get there. He lives from roughly 1150, we don't, it's hard to date his birth, but he dies approximately 1100 B.C. He is the one who will deliver the, the uh, Jews from the Ammonites. So he is from 1150 to 1100 B.C., and he's the one who, who delivers the nation from the Ammonite oppression. Then there is Samson. Notice, Samson is born before the Ammonite oppression is over with. He's born in 1123 B.C. He's just about 25 years younger than Jephthah, so their lives overlap and their function as judges overlap. But they're directed in different directions. Jephthah towards the Ammonites and Samson towards the Philistines. But Samson is the last judge in the book. He is the first one that doesn't complete the task. It is under the Philistine oppression at the end of Judges is the first time there's a, uh, a disciplinary cycle where the Jews do not repent. The Hebrews do not turn back to God. There is no repentance. And when Judges ends, they are still under Philistine oppression. So God has to raise up another prophet, Judge, the last of the Judges. And this is Samuel, who is born in 1115. Notice Samuel would have been about nine or ten years old when Jephthah delivered the Ammonites, delivered Israel from the Ammonite oppression. And he would have been uh, about, you know, just a couple of years older when the Battle of Aphek took place in 1104 B.C. Now, the Battle of Aphek is described for us in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And this is when the Israelites go into battle with the Philistines. And they're losing the battle, and they say, go get the Ark of God. And the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle is set up in a small village called Shiloh. And they go get the, the Ark, and they're treating the Ark like a superstitious talisman. We're going to get the Ark, and if we have the Ark with us, it's going to give us victory. There's no submission to God. There's still no repentance for their sin of assimilation with Canaanite thinking and Canaanite religions. Uh, they, they're just going to use God for their purposes. 
You know, there's a tremendous similarity of what's going on here and what goes on in modern America. The, the religious system that dominated the Canaanite religion is what's called fertility worship, the phallic cult. And it was all involved with increasing your material gains, your productivity in an agriculture environment. The fertility religion is designed to somehow manipulate and motivate the gods so that by giving the right sacrifice, going through the right action, rubbing your rabbit's foot the right way, chanting the right incantation, saying the right words, that the God in turn will give you wealth. He will make you healthy and wealthy. You see, the Old Testament phallic cult, fertility religion, is just the same thing as the modern health and wealth gospel that you see all the idiots on television proclaiming. They're just the modern version of what takes place in Judges. They have assimilated Christianity with paganism and come out with this whole new theology called the health and wealth movement. And if you, if you can understand some of these things in, in Judges, you'll see tremendous application with what's going on in uh, churches today. Not only does it affect things like that, but the whole modern contemporary chorus worship thing is the same practice. It's going out and assimilating pagan concepts of music and thought and form and bringing it into the church in order to make the church more appealing to unbelievers. So this is what had taken place in the period of the judges. So at the battle of Aphek, rather than Submitting to God, going to God in repentance, that means a change of mind, submitting themselves to the authority of God, and turning from negative volition to positive volition. At effect, the Jews say, let's go get God and let, bring the ark out here, and that's going to give us victory. But God it can't be manipulated. What happens? The Philistines have one of the most incredible military victories over the Jews in history. The Jews are devastated. It's another 20 years before they can mount an armed defense against the Philistines. They are wiped out, and it is one of the greatest tragedies in ancient history, one of the greatest military defeats in ancient history, and the Ark is captured by the Philistines, and they now think that their gods are better than the gods of the Jews. They've heard all the stories about Jericho, about the, about, all the way back to Egypt. They know about the, the Jews coming out of Egypt. They know about the Red Sea. They know about all of this. Now, aren't we powerful? Our gods are more powerful than, than Yahweh, the God of Egypt. And so they bring the ark back to one of their cities and they put it in the temple of Dagon. Because they're showing, they're illustrating by this that, that they put it at the feet of their idol Dagon. There's this huge idol of the fish and they put the ark at, at the base to show that their God is over the God of Israel. Next morning they go in there and Dagon is down on its face bowing in obeisance to the Ark of the Covenant. So he's standing back up. We've got to prop up our gods. See, that's the problem with paganism is they always have to prop up their gods with something. So they prop up their gods and the next morning he's down again and then they move the Ark around and God brings uh, a great sense of humor in, in, uh, in Samuel because uh, uh, he, he gives them a plague of hemorrhoids. And there's just tremendous humor. I mean, and you just don't get it out of the English. God, I mean, they're just all, and we're going to see a lot of it in Judges as well, that there's, there's a lot of sarcasm, there's a lot of irony, a lot of different word plays like this. It's a very, very earthy kind of book. So some of you just may be a little shocked by the language God the Holy Spirit uses to communicate truth. But that's because you're used to American legalism and not to biblical reality. So the Battle of Aphek wipes out the Israeli army, the Israelite army in 1104 B.C. And it's not until the Battle of Mizpah in 1084 B.C. that they finally defeat the Philistines under the leadership of Samuel. But notice what else takes place in 1084 B.C. If you look at the chart up there, you'll see that Samson dies in 1084 B.C. And it's interesting to speculate. See, the two books are written differently. But it's interesting, once you start correlating the chronology here, to speculate that it is the death of Samson when he, when he uh, knocks down the temple and he pushes down the pillars and he's killed in that process, that in retaliation, 
the Philistines decide that now that Samson's dead, they can defeat the Jews, and so they attack Israel. And what happens is they are summarily defeated, and this period of Philistine oppression ends in 1084 uh, B.C. Now, Saul reigns from 1075 to 1011, so this puts you into context. But what happens in the, at the Battle of Mizpah in 1 Samuel 7:11, it ends the Philistine oppression, but it also sets up something else that is, that is very dangerous in terms of what they're trying to do. This takes place in, in um, Israel when there is no king. And we're reminded again of the fact that there was no king in Israel during the period of the judges. In, uh, let me back up a minute. Judges 21-25 were told, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So we need to develop the, the idea of kingship. We're going to understand what the author wants us to learn. We have to understand the dynamics of kingship in Israel at this time. So turn in your Bibles to Judges 8.22. Judges 8.22. This is at the end of after Gideon has had his victory over the Midianites. The men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule and your son. See, they want to establish a dynasty here. They don't just want Gideon to rule. They want to establish a dynasty. Rule over us, both you and your son, also your son's son, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But notice, this is, this is the high point in Gideon's life, and it, it doesn't last long. He says, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. They look for a kingship and the establishment of a dynasty, but Gideon's response is that God alone is sufficient to rule Israel, and the people should submit to his rulership as king. Now, when we look at the phrase, in those days there was no king in Israel, it's easy to look at it. It's it's a vague statement. It's easy to look at it from a perspective of, of the kingship in Israel and saying, well, there wasn't a king yet. And so this is an argument for the need for a monarchy. And that's a little shallow. You see, the Mosaic Law established Israel as a theocracy. God was the king. And there's a double entendre in that sentence. That's why it's deliberately vague. When the writer is saying, in those days there was no king in Israel, he is also saying that in those days Israel had rejected God as king in favor of their own authority. They have rejected God as king, and so Gideon has reminded them that the Lord is their king, and the Lord should rule over them. Then turn over to the next chapter, and we're going to see the development of this kingship idea with Gideon's son. You see, the the sad thing about Gideon is that Gideon comes along and he sounds so... Uh, so noble, let God rule over you. And at that moment in time, he was probably stable in fellowship and articulating the truth. But it's not long before this idea of monarchy gets to him. Remember the old saying that uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, that's what's going on in Gideon's thinking. He gives in to pride and arrogance. He not only sets up an ephah, which is a priestly garment that becomes an idol, and he leads the people back into idolatry, but they asked him to say, Gideon, Gideon, we want you and your son to reign over us. Gideon says, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to establish a dynasty, but he thinks about it. Now, he never becomes king. He never asserts himself. But when he names his son, he names his son Avimelech. In the Hebrew. Malak is the Hebrew word for king. Malak is the word for king. Malak is the verb to reign. Avi, Av is the word for father, like in Av, Avram, Avraham. Avi is the, the I is the first person suffix, meaning my father is king. So unless you know a little Hebrew, you just miss the whole humor in this text, is that Gideon comes along and says, I'm not going to be king. God, let God rule over you. And and I'm not going to establish a dynasty. And then he names his son, my father is king. And that's exactly what happens. It's foreshadowing because in, Genesis, in Judges 9-6, all the men of Shechem 
And all Beth Milo assembled together, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar which was in Shechem. So the next time somebody asks you who the first king of Israel was, it's Abimelech. It's not Saul. See, you thought it was Saul all this time, and you were wrong. Now, Saul is the first authorized king of Israel, but he is not the first one crowned king of Israel. They made Abimelech king by the oak, and it doesn't last long. It's a couple of years, and then he's assassinated, and, and they just continue to deteriorate further and further into anarchy. So there's no king in Israel. Every man is doing what's right in their own eyes, and it continues to deteriorate. Now, when you get to this point, you need to turn over. We need to ask, what's going on here? Let's ask a question. Let's go back. It came about in those days when there was no king in Israel. Now, let's turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8 and see what happens. This is after the battle of Mizpah. Let's go back now, get oriented. You have the oppression of the Philistines, the Philistines... Wipe out the Jews at the Battle of Aphek in 1104, and then in about 1086, they are defeated at the Battle of Mizpah. After the Battle of Mizpah, the people hold a congress, and they start twisting Samuel's arm for a king. And notice what they say. Verse 1, And came about when Samuel was old. So this, we don't know how old old is, but this is not long after this. Samuel was old. He appointed his sons judges over Israel. The name of the first was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted judgment. Just like Eli's sons and just like many of the judges in the book of Judges, they are perverted by the Canaanite uh, culture of paganism. They have no integrity. They're in, in it for their own gain. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge like all the nations. You see, they want to have a king like all the nations. So this means we have to take a moment to find out what is going on around Israel in terms of kingship. Now, the strongest kingship around was down just south of Israel in Egypt. The Pharaoh was, Pharaoh in Egypt was the most powerful king in all of human history. He is God incarnate. He is the, considered the son of God and the God King, and the people completely believed that. There, in all of the years that, that Pharaoh ruled, especially in this early stage, in these early, early dynasties, you see the Pharaoh presented as God. And, and you see this pictorially in many of the tombs and many of the drawings. In this particular one we have, you can see the figures that are posted up there. Uh, and how large they are, and the other people are very small. And what they are saying is that that Pharaoh is really larger than life. He's a god. He's not just like every other man, and all the other figures are are small. Here's a picture again. You see a Pharaoh going forth in battle. It didn't matter whether Pharaoh actually was in the battle or not. Pharaoh always led the troops. He was always seen as the one who brought victory. And all of the other figures in the mural are smaller than Pharaoh. He is the one who brings victory. Here is the foot. You've probably seen pictures of the great Ramesseum dedicated to Ramses II, where they have the huge colossus figures of Ramses. Ramses is a god. Well, at his feet, you see the figures of his daughters and his wives. And this is the small figure that you see just standing on his foot. So once again, the Pharaoh is presented larger than life. He is the god and... Everyone else is small. Also, the Sphinx. This is a row of Sphinx, Sphinxes at the Ramesseum, but you're familiar with the other Sphinx with the head of Pharaoh and the body of a lion. And this is to picture the fact that Pharaoh has tremendous power. He has the power and the strength of a lion. 
and all that goes with that. There is none more powerful than Pharaoh. So the Sphinx, when you think of the Sphinx and you see a Sphinx, think of it as a theological statement about the power of the God-King, Pharaoh. Now, in the ancient world, prior to the time of Judges, the two major power blocks are either in Egypt to the south or Mesopotamia to the north and west. Pharaoh is Amun-Re incarnate. He is not simply the chief administrator or executive power in the nation. He is the nation. Everything is made to serve Pharaoh. He had the greatest system of slavery the world has ever seen. And by great, I don't mean positive. It was enormous. And if you think about what they accomplished during those early dynasties in the Old Kingdom, when they built the, the, uh, the, the, great, uh, the great pyramids and the slave labor involved to go all the way over into the Sinai and to cut those enormous blocks of stone and then to move them without benefit of a wheel, they didn't have a wheel at that time, without benefit of a wheel to move them across the desert, load them on boats, ferry them across the Red Sea, then move them across the hot sands to the Nile, and then to move them up those, those slopes and, those, and to build all of those pyramids, that entails power, especially since we have no record that there were any slave revolts. You don't revolt against God. So there's this tremendous authority in the person of Pharaoh. This is to the south. Now to the west you have, and, and north you have the Mesopotamian Valley. And there the kings are not gods, but they also have an incredibly strong power base. They're, they are the second, one of the, the, I'd say the second strongest kingship uh, in history. Their kings are all pictured as men. When you see their drawings, they're the same size as the men. But they are more than simply executives in the government. They are also prophet and priest. The Mesopotamian kings would act as priests for the nations. They would go into the temples. They would offer sacrifices. They would receive omens and visions from the gods and dictate the will of the gods to the people. So as the arbiter of the will of God to the people, they are second in power only to the Pharaoh. Now, in the ancient world, There's several different words used for king. In Phoenicia, you have the king. I'm going to put two lines up here. You had kings and counselors. In Phoenicia, the king was called the Malak. I'm just going to put the consonants up here because... In the, the Semitic languages, they didn't have vowels. And you'll see the comparison much more readily if I just put the consonants up there. The officials under the king, his closest counselors, were called Shufatim. Now, in Akkad, in the lower Mesopotamian region, the king was called the, the Lugal, L-G-L. Now, what happens is, look at Malak. Often when a word goes from one language to another, it will either a G or K will assimilate. A G will harden to a K or a K will soften to a G. So you drop the M and you have the L and the K is reflected in the first two letters of Lugal. So that's very similar. The officials under the king are called the shop two. The vowels change, but it's the same, same consonants, the shop two. In Carthage... I haven't been able to discover the name of the ruler of Carthage, but in, in Carthage, the counselors under the king also that were called the Shaphat, Shaphtu, and that again is S-H-P-H-T. It's the same consonants that you have in the Hebrew. Now, in Israel, when you come to Israel, what you have is just the judges. The judges, the Shaphat. Just the judges, the Shaphat. There's nothing here. There is no king. So Israel's looking all around, and there's nothing comparable in Israel. 
What fills that slot in Israel is God. So Israel stands out. If th- think about yourself as a, as a merchantman in the ancient world. And you are traveling in a caravan throughout from Egypt to, to uh, Mesopotamia, maybe up to Anatolia, to the Hittite kingdom in, in Turkey and Asia Minor. And as you travel down to Egypt, you're impressed with this autocratic power of Pharaoh and how everyone serves Pharaoh. In fact, the power of Pharaoh is so great that if the shadow of Pharaoh fell on you, you would, uh, they would probably kill you because you have been touched by deity. And you, no one was to come into the presence of Pharaoh, and those, except for a rare few who were given special permission. So the Pharaoh is God. And then, then you leave there and you travel over to Mesopotamia, and there you see the, the prophet-priest kings of the Mesopotamian companies of, uh, countries of Babylon and Agad and other areas. Then you travel up into the Hittite area, you see the same thing demonstrated there. And then you come to Israel. And in Israel, there's no king. There is, there's this constitution that binds the twelve tribes together. But what you have there is the most incredible code of law for freedom that ever existed in the ancient world. And as you come to Israel, this stands out. See, Israel didn't have to do anything but just what God told them to do. And they were going to be a witness in the ancient world. They would stand out. People would just come in and say, man, it's different. There's no great authority. You're not slaves. You have freedom. You can do what you want. You can build a tremendous... If they were obedient to God, God was going to bless them and prosper them. And they'd be the wealthiest nation around. And that's what happened under David and Solomon. And and the reputation was so great that even the Queen of Sheba came to find out. See, instead of like the church where we're sent out into the world to proclaim the gospel, Israel was just supposed to stay in one place and be be obedient. And they would be a witness and God would bring the world to Israel, and Israel then would have this tremendous uh, witness about freedom in all, all of history and about that true freedom came only through submission to God. Now, when we come to 1 Samuel chapter 8, there is a danger here. This is a classic statement that is given about the evils of centralized power and tyrannical government. But we're going to have to stop here because we are out of time. And we'll come back next time to look at what God says about the kingship and the organization of Israel and how this impacted the ancient world. And what we'll see there is is just the opposite of everything you've been taught in history. Everything we're taught in history is that freedom came from democracy, from the Greek polis, from Greco-Roman culture, And guess where they got it, folks? They got it from the Jews. And that's demonstrable. But you won't ever hear it in a secular classroom because to make that statement is to affirm the validity and veracity of the Bible. And this is one reason when I go into all the dates, what happens is the liberals come along and they have to telescope Israel's history so that they can get some of these things that went on in Greece and other parts of the country before the events in Israel so that they can make Israel borrowing them from other countries. But if you stick with biblical chronology, you see that the reverse is true, and it is the witness of God in history that lays the foundation for absolutes in government and for breaking the tyranny of the monarchy. You see, what we'll, what we'll discover next time when we come back is that between the tyrannical government systems of the Mesopotamian and Egyptian kingdoms, and the democracy development in the polis, in, in the polis system in Athens and Greece in the 5th century B.C. stands what? Stands Israel. And Israel was on the edge of what group? The Philistines. The Philistines are watching the Jews. All the way through the period up to Saul, David, and Solomon. And the Philistines are what? They are Greek sea peoples. And if you want to understand a lot of what's going on in the Bible and in history, you have to understand that this, the commercial flow from the Philistines back to Greece brought certain ideas from Israel to the Greeks in terms of politics. But because they didn't have the religious foundation of the absolutes of the Mosaic Law, it could never succeed. 
and that has implications for us, and we'll get there next time. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for this time to see how you have worked in history and that decisions, spiritual decisions by a nation impact history. And as goes the believer, so goes the nation. And that we are challenged by the fact that it is the positive volition, the spiritual growth of the individual believer that has more impact on the course of a, nat- of a nation than any other factor. Father, we thank you that you work in history and that you are not just a God who judges man for sin, but you are a God of grace, a God who, is pro- who provides deliverance from sin. Just as you provided deliverance in Israel, you have provided eternal deliverance through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their eternal destiny, uncertain of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make that certain. All that is necessary is that you believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. The Bible says that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And the key to salvation is simply belief. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, Father, we thank you for the things that we have learned today. May they challenge us and may they help shape our thinking that we may reflect your thinking in our lives and glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.